If you've looked at the bulletin, and I trust you have, you see a very brief uh, article there about the fruit of the Spirit. And we'll just uh, read that since it's so brief to refresh our minds about what we're about to study. The holiday season and fruit, we say, seem to go together. Holiday fruit baskets filled with nutritious and sometimes not so nutritious goodies may be seen in stores everywhere, neatly wrapped in cellophane, tied with a brightly colored bow. And then we mentioned there was a time when just the fruit itself was a welcome gift, and my wife reminded me that her grandparents used to talk about how excited they were as children when they got oranges for Christmas, a fruit they didn't get at other times of the year. And yet I mentioned that today most children who might receive oranges for a holiday gift would wonder what they had done to get themselves on the naughty list. All they got was an orange or two or three. But for the next few weeks, we're going to study the fruit of the Spirit from Galatians 5, and we begin today with love, where that list begins. Because it is absolutely essential that our spiritual fruit baskets, if you will, be filled with all of these wonderful Christian characteristics. You know, there are some commercials that are very prevalent right now on TV. One is a credit card commercial, which ends with, what's in your wallet? We've all seen that one probably. Some have probably seen the one where gold and silver are being advertised as an investment, and that one ends with, what's in your safe? But uh, today, the question that we want to ask is, what's in your basket? What is in your spiritual fruit basket? And as we said, we base that on the fruit of the Spirit in Galatians 5, 22 and 23. Let's notice that passage. As Paul writes, But the fruit of the Spirit is love. Joy, peace, long-suffering, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. And then he adds, against such, there is no law. As the New King James renders that text in Galatians 5. Now, when we ask the question, and we should ask, what is the fruit of the Spirit? The answer is pretty straightforward, I think. If you ask the question, what is the fruit of the Spirit?, The answer would be, it's the produce of the Spirit. It's what the Spirit produces. It's the produce of of the Spirit. But then we need to ask another question, and that is, how does the Spirit produce love and joy and peace and long-suffering and kindness and all these other wonderful, absolutely essential qualities? How does the Spirit produce these things? And the answer, importantly, is... Through the Word. Through the Word. That's the only way that the Spirit has, the only way the Spirit needs to produce these qualities in our lives is through the Word that the Holy Spirit has given. Jesus reminds us in Matthew twelve thirty three that a tree is known by its fruit. And we are known by the fruit in our basket or the fruit on our tree. In our case, we're staying with the analogy of the basket, and the very first fruit 
that we discuss is the very first one on the list, and that is love. And where should we go in one lesson to best discuss this fruit? What chapter in Scripture would come to your mind, quite likely, as the chapter to which we should go to get the best description of love that anyone could ever find in the Word of God, I believe. Well, the answer would be the love chapter. The love chapter. 1 Corinthians 13. But we need to appreciate the background of Paul's discussion of love in this chapter. And we need to appreciate the context in which we find this beautiful, beautiful discussion of love. You know, the chapter divisions were placed uh, many, many, many years, obviously, after the New Testament was written. The chapter divisions were placed long after the New Testament was written by man. And so many times the chapter divisions come at some, uh, some awkward places in terms of providing some confusion, perhaps, about the, co- the continuity of a discussion. And really, in 1 Corinthians chapters 12, 13, and 14, we have a continuing discussion of a very important matter, and that is the spiritual gifts that were available in the early church and that were necessary in the early church. I read recently that Brother Alan Hires, in answering the question at the open forum at Fried Hardman one year as to a a uh, description or a definition or a dis- uh, of these three chapters, that chapter 12, he said, would be the spiritual gifts defined, the definition of spiritual gifts, and they are defined there. And then in chapter 13, we would have the duration of the spiritual gifts. How long are they going to endure or last? And then in chapter 14, the discharge, the discharge of those spiritual gifts. In other words, how are they to be discharged? How are they to be used? And that's what 1 Corinthians 14 deals with. When you come together, how, you know, if one has a tongue, one has a prophecy, etc., it's all to be done decently and in order. All of that is a regulation as to how these gifts were to be discharged. So the definition, the duration, and the discharge of the gifts, that's a good summary, I believe, of these three chapters. And so in chapter 12, as a part of this greater context... In the very last verse of chapter 12, Paul writes, but earnestly desire the best gifts. He talks about the various gifts, and there were some who were so enthralled and enamored with the idea of being able to speak in a language they had never learned. And there was some dissension about the utilization of these gifts and so forth in the church at Corinth. And so Paul is writing concerning that, but he says, desire the best gift, and Paul had said, It's better to be able to teach something than to just be able to speak in a tongue necessarily. And so he discusses that, and it's not our purpose to go into a detailed discussion of the content of chapter 12, but it is important to set the background or set the stage for our discussion of love. And in verse 31 of chapter 12, he says, Desire, earnestly desire the best gifts, and then he says this, And yet I show you a more excellent way. I show you a more excellent way. Literally, the idea here in the word excellent and in this expression is, I'm going to show you a road or a way that throws beyond. 
that throws beyond. It's the, it's the word from which we get our word hyperbole. I'm going to show you a road or a way that throws beyond everything else, that is superior to everything else. All of these miraculous gifts. I'm about to show you something that is far superior to all of these gifts combined. What could that be? The answer in, verse, in chapter 13 is love. It is love. The late Hugo McCord said, not only is love superior to all of these miraculous gifts in this context, but he said, really, when you look at the New Testament, you see its superiority to other non-miraculous gifts. Something more important than compassion, something more important than kindness, something more important than, than long-suffering. Well, we're going to end this chapter with, and now abides faith, hope, love, but the greatest of these is love. I didn't say that. Paul, by inspiration, said it. And what about Paul's words if we look at a companion passage in Colossians chapter 3, verses 12 through 14, where the clothing analogy is used here by the Apostle Paul, and where the admonition is, therefore, as the elect of God, holy and beloved, put on tender mercies, kindness, humbleness of mind, meekness, long-suffering, bearing with one another and forgiving one another. If anyone has a complaint against another, even as Christ forgave you, so you also must do. But now here's verse 14. But above all these things, put on love, which is the bond of perfection. And then in First Peter, Chapter 4, Peter writes this, And above all things, have fervent love for one another, for love will cover a multitude of sins. And then go with me to Second Peter chapter 1, and the so-called Christian graces as we refer to them. And in verses 5 through 7, but also for this very reason, giving all diligence, add to your faith virtue, to virtue knowledge, to knowledge self-control, to self-control perseverance, to perseverance godliness, to godliness brotherly kindness, and to brotherly kindness love. Love. Why? Why is love so vitally important? Why is love listed as it is and spoken of as it is? In Scripture, John 13, 34 and 35 are verses that provide the answer. Remember them. We've looked at them even recently. A new commandment, Jesus said, I give to you that you love one another as I have loved you that you also love one another. By this, all will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. By your a cappella singing, all will know that you are my disciples. By your partaking every first day of the week of the Lord's Supper, all will know that you are my disciples. No. By the fact that you've been immersed into Christ, all will know that you are my disciples. No. Are we saying those things we've just mentioned are unimportant? No, they're absolutely essential. 
But what is it that the non-Christian out here will see in us that will cause him or her to determine that we are God's people or we are not God's people, that we are following Jesus Christ or that we are not following Jesus Christ? Jesus says, I'll tell you what it is. It's your love that you have for one another. That's what they'll see. All these other things are vitally important. Yes, how we worship, etc. Oh, yes. And what about forgiving one another? Yes. What about compassion? What about kindness? We're going to talk about those qualities in relation to love as it is set forth for us here in this great chapter on love. But you see, if love is where it needs to be, and love is being practiced as it should, the agape love, the highest form of love, the love that unselfishly seeks the help and good of others, whether they seek our good or not, if that love is in place, then the compassion will be there. The forgiveness will follow. All of it will come beautifully and harmoniously into perfect clarity in the life of the child of God. Can we overdo love? In one sense, we would answer no. Paul wrote to the Thessalonians and said, I want you to increase and abound in love. In other words, I want your love to keep on increasing. I want it to keep on abounding. And so in one sense, we would answer no. But in another sense, we would have to answer the question, absolutely, yes, we can overdo love. Yes, we can overdo it. We can overdo love when we contend that there's no law but love. That that's the only law we need to be concerned about is love. That's overdoing love, isn't it? Or when we contend that love fellowships everybody. When we contend that love fellowships everybody, then we have overdone love. And so obviously the love about which we speak today must be kept within its proper scriptural boundaries. But without that love, without that love, how can we possibly be pleasing to God? Now then, let's go to the passage in 1 Corinthians, especially looking at verses 4 through 8, the first part of verse 8 especially, as we see Paul's Paul's particulars on love. In the first three verses, and before we see these in particular, just by way of introduction, go back to the first three verses of 1 Corinthians 13. We're not going to spend a lot of time there, but it is important to read them and to comment briefly. Though I speak with the tongues of men and of angels, but have not love, I am become a sounding brass or a clanging cymbal. And though I have the gift of prophecy and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and though I have all faith so that I could remove mountains, but have not love, I am nothing. And though I bestow all my goods to feed the poor, and though I give my body to be burned, but have not love, it profits me nothing. And now we're ready for verse 4, where love suffers long. But before we go there, think about this. These three verses we've just read, are sobering indeed. 
as to what they say about the essentiality of loving one another as we should. Because keep in mind that Paul is saying, if I could speak with the tongues, and remember our overall context is these miraculous gifts, he's, he's rebuking the Corinthian brethren to some extent because of their clamoring after these things, and he's trying to sell them, I'm going to show you a more excellent way, and you need to stop bickering and clamoring and envying one another over these various gifts and so forth, because if I could speak with the tongues of men and of angels, what's angel speech? I don't know. I don't know how the angels communicate, but Paul said if I could communicate as men communicate with each other, if I could speak the language of angels, but if I didn't have love, I'd become as a sounding brass or a clanging cymbal. And though I have the gift of prophecy and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and though I have all faith so that I could remove mountains, that's miraculous faith. These are the miraculous gifts he's talking about here. But have not love, I am what? Nothing. He doesn't say I'm not quite there yet. I'm still imperfect. No, he says I am nothing. I am nothing. And then it, it gets even more extreme. And though I bestow all my goods to feed the poor, and though I give my body to be burned, but have not love, it profits me nothing. Suffering martyrdom for the wrong motive profits me nothing if I don't have this absolutely essential quality of love. Shouldn't that sober our thinking and get our attention about this discussion that ensues here now? beginning in verse 4. As he's seen the, has shown us the preeminence of love, in those three verses he now shows us the particulars of that love that we must have. Love, what? Love suffers long. It suffers long. It's long-suffering. It's the word that is most often translated patience. It endures. It doesn't overlook sin and disregard sin. That's a violation of what is clearly elsewhere and abundantly taught in Scripture. But it is patient. Love is patient, long-suffering. Giving time and opportunity for growth to occur and not jumping the gun and flying off the handle, but learning to suffer long and to forbear, and to encourage one another, and to strengthen one another, and is kind. Is kind. Kindness is a quality that's lacking in our world today, isn't it? But it should be abundantly present in the kingdom of God, the church of Christ. Now, I don't think we have to elaborate on what kindness involves and what kindness is, and how kindness manifests itself in goodness toward others, and showing that kindness by our deeds and by our actions, and obviously by our words. And love does not envy. Love does not envy. Love is not jealous or envious over the success of of a brother or a sister, but The success of a brother or sister should cause us to rejoice 
and not to resent that brother or sister's success. The New King James then says that love does not parade itself. The King James says, vaunteth not itself. It's not out here as the drum major, so to speak, in the front of a band, vaunting itself or parading itself before others. You remember in this First Corinthian epistle, Paul addressed the church at Corinth in First Corinthians chapter 5 about the man living with his stepmother is the indication. And their attitude toward it was that they were glorying in it. And we mentioned that the, the glorying may have been that look how much we love. We love so much we can put up with this kind of fornication here. That's how much we love. That's love parading itself, obviously, in the wrong way. It also relates to the next phrase, is not puffed up. And you know that phrase puffed up literally comes from a word that indicates a bellows that is just pumping air. And so we don't pride ourselves in how loving we are. We show how loving we are. We let others see it. It's humble. It's meek. It's not ostentatious. It does not parade itself. It is not puffed up. And need we elaborate much on the next phrase, nor behaves, not behave uh, rudely, is not puffed up, does not behave rudely. Unbecomingly is the idea. Love doesn't prompt us to do or to say things that are unbecoming of children of God. And we need to be very careful about weighing our words. And we've talked about these things in other connections in James and how much James writes about the tongue and the use of the tongue and the guarding of the tongue and how difficult it is to tame the tongue. Love does not behave rudely. And love is not selfish. It doesn't seek its own but it looks for the good of others. Reminds us of what Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 10, later in this or earlier in this same epistle. At verse 24, let no one seek his own, but each one the other's well-being. Not seeking your own, but the other's well-being. Does that mean that you shouldn't take care of yourself? Shouldn't be concerned about yourself? Well, no, that's not what it means. But you, you seek the welfare of others above Self. You know, the Lord, the first and great commandment is love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, strength, and mind. The second like unto it is this, that you love your neighbor as whom? As yourself. Does the Bible enjoin self-love upon us? Absolutely it does. But, but where are we in the equation? Where are we in the pecking order, so to speak? God is first, fellow man is second, and we're down here third. And the love that we have for ourselves is to be a healthy self-love, self-respect that will cause us to take care of ourselves and do things that are right for ourselves, but we put others ahead of ourselves. We don't seek our own. And love is not provoked. Not provoked to say and do those things that indeed later we regret. We're human beings, and we do make mistakes. But as human beings, 
obviously. We recognize those, and we address them and take care of them, as has been done even this very day. And thanks be to God for the kind of hearts that do that and are willing to do that. Thinks no evil. Thinks no evil. The word here for thinks is the word that literally is an accounting type word. Takes no account or doesn't keep a record is really the idea here. We don't keep a record of evil. It's like a husband or a wife who may keep records on each other. And so if they get into, uh, get into an argument, the husband pulls out his record and says, well, I remember on such and such a date you, date you said this when we had that argument then. That would be a record keeping that is not healthy for a marriage, obviously. But here Paul says we don't keep records. We don't keep records either in terms of accounting for things that have been done that have been taken care of and repented of where sin is concerned and we don't speculate and read into situations that which would be an evil surmising which we have no right to do because remember Matthew 12:33 Jesus said a tree is known by its what thoughts <laughs> no by its fruits and so we are not Judges, as the late Marshall Keeble said, in the wrong sense of the word, we're fruit inspectors. We're fruit inspectors. And we judge righteous judgment. And then he says, this love does not rejoice in iniquity. We are never glad in any sense or to any degree over something wrong that someone else does. Never. No matter who it is. Even if it's someone who would do us harm, and we know that that person, by wanting to do us harm, is doing wrong, we don't wish for him or her anything bad. And if something does occur that is bad to that person who has made himself or herself our enemy by his or her own doing, we do not rejoice in the downfall of that person. We don't rejoice in the iniquity of anybody, no matter who it is ever. Lot vexed his righteous soul from day to day in Sodom with the unlawful deeds of those with whom he lived. And there's no indication that when Sodom was destroyed, Lot, Lot said, they got theirs now. No indication in scripture that I can find of that. We don't rejoice in iniquity, but we rejoice in the truth. And then he summarizes. Rejoicing in the truth is self-explanatory, isn't it? And oh, how we should rejoice when truth is preached, when truth is obeyed. And then he summarizes that it bears all things, and that word bears is a roof. It's like a roof that provides a shelter. Love covers a multitude of sins. How does love cover a multitude of sins? How does love throw a roof or a shelter over sin? By forgiving it when it is repented of. And love will cause us to reach out to those who have sinned and try to bring, bring them back to us and do everything we can to do so. Bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. What a great summary here of this great quality of love. And a sermon could be preached in every case, in every single description that Paul gives. 
love never fails. Love never fails. He'll go on. He'll go on to finish out this chapter by telling us that whether there be prophecies, they will fail. Tongues will cease, but love will never fail. And the word fail there indicates that it will never fall from its lofty position. Love will never fall from the lofty position in which God has placed it. That's how excellent it is. That's how absolutely essential it is. And remember verse 13, the final verse of the chapter, Now abide faith, hope, love, but the greatest of these is love. Faith and hope are going to abide, so will love. But the greatest of these is love because love is to motivate our faith to act. Love is to motivate us to respond to the commands of God. And that brings us to the conclusion that love keeps commandments. John chapter 14 Verse 15, in John 14, 15, if you love me, keep my commandments. At verse 21, same chapter, he who has my commandments and keeps them, it is he who loves me, and he who loves me will be loved by my Father, and I will love him and manifest myself to him. Verse 23, Jesus answered and said to him, if anyone loves me, he will keep my word, and my Father will love him, and we will come to him and make our home. With him. Verse 24 He who does not love me does not keep my words, and the word which you hear is not mine, but the Father's who sent me. How much clearer could the Lord have made it that love keeps commandments? Love doesn't ignore them. And the same writer, John, who recorded those words of Jesus, also reminds us in 1 John chapter 5 and verse 3, For this is the love of God, that we keep His commandments, and His commandments are not burdensome. And you remember back at 1 John 2, in 1 John 2 and verse 3, Now by this we know that we know Him, if we keep His commandments. And then he adds, He who says, I know Him and does not keep His commandments is a liar. And the truth is not in him. How important is love? There's no way to overstate the importance. We can overdo it, we said, by saying that love is the only law. We've already seen that that's not true. We can overdo it by saying love fellowships everybody. But we cannot overemphasize the importance of biblical love, practiced congregation-wide, beginning with me as an individual to determine that I'm going to have this kind of love. The late Hugo McCord again said, these verses here, because God is the personification of love, you could just simply substitute the word God for love here. God suffers long and is kind. God does not envy, and on we could go. He also said you could also substitute the word Jesus for the word love. And it would do no violence to the text, not at all. Jesus suffers long and is kind. Jesus does not envy. Jesus does not 
parade himself, etc. But who else could be inserted there? Who else should be? Every Christian. And so I ought to be able to say, Jim suffers long as his kind. Jim does not envy. And so should all of us. Because God is love. And if we love God, God being the personification of love, then this passage needs to describe us. There's a work in our brotherhood I was somewhat aware of. And recently the elders received an appeal for some financial help for this work. And I mention it because I think it's relevant to this discussion of love. I believe the work is called Lighting the Fire. It's a work that is carried on by a sound congregation in Virginia where they bring young preachers in, mostly young preachers in, to work with the congregation there for about two years and to, in many cases, rekindle or relight the fire in them to continue preaching because they have become so discouraged in their work. And the brochure that they sent, I believe, includes statistics that said 50% of preachers leaving training schools quit preaching within five years after they leave preacher training schools. I, I remember the words bold idealism that they have. And I always remember Richard Curry who said, there's no perfect congregation, and even if there were a perfect congregation, when you got there, it'd be imperfect. But you know, there's a vast difference between being an imperfect congregation, and we are because we're all human, and not manifesting the kind of love that would make any young preacher excited about working with the White Oak Church. Let's determine that we'll always be the kind of congregation into which a young man might come and spend year after year and be greatly encouraged and greatly strengthened so that he would never have the need for a lighting the fire ministry. Love keeps commandments. Have you kept the commandments to become a Christian? Have you expressed your belief in Jesus as the Christ by repenting of your sins, confessing Him to be the Christ, and being buried with Him in baptism for the remission of sins? If not, we plead with you to do that. And by so doing, you truly show your love and your desire to rise from the watery grave of baptism loving fervently those who've undergone that same obedient process and determined to love them fervently and to increase and to abound in that love. But if you've done those things, but you haven't increased and abounded in love, in fact, you have wandered and have sinned in a way to bring reproach upon the church. Come home to a loving God and, yes, to a loving family who loves you desires to pray with you and for you that you may be again the loving individual that all of us are striving to be with God's help as we stand to sing. Will you come? <laughs>